like for you to, again to take the word of God, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you're wondering what this is, we're not going to do the Lord's Supper. We don't do that from up here anyway. We do it from down on the floor where everybody's on equal ground before the Lord, you know. This is an object lesson, and I'm just praying that the air compressor I have up here doesn't kick on during the service. Now, that might help us today because I know we're sleepy. We're losing an hour of sleep last night, and then it's kind of warm in here as well. But uh, we're going to try to make a, a demonstration this morning that will help us, impact us, uh, to remember one of the points of the message this morning. But uh, we're going to be uh, reading from Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. And verses 16 and 17, where the Word of God says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today. Lord, we're tired, uh, we're frail. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us today to uh, be able to still worship you the way you want. I pray, Father, that the message would be interesting, and I pray that we'd be interested in the message. God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts concerning the Word of God. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be expectant, uh, expecting to respond uh, to however you may speak to our hearts. We pray and we ask these things. Help me, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we spoke of the fall of mankind. And by the way, we've been able to get uh, several of our uh, Sunday morning messages up on the podcast now. And there's two ways to get to those. Number one, you can uh, subscribe by an app on your phone uh, to the podcast. And it's Liberty Lake Baptist Church. If you do a search, you'll find it. You can subscribe to our podcast and our goal is to get the Sunday morning message up uh, by Monday uh, of every week. And so we've been able to do that. That message, The Fall of Man, is on the podcast. Another way to get to that is to go through our website, www.LibertyLakeBaptistChurch.com, and you can get to the podcast through there. It says, listen to our podcast, and you click on that, and it takes you right to that, and you'll begin. it'll, it'll automatically start playing. And you'll be able to hear those messages. You can share them with others. After last week's message, I had such a response to it that I posted it on our Facebook page and said that many folks found this to be um, a help to them. And I thought that maybe others would too. And I stand before you today as one that has been prosecuted by the Facebook police. And my message was taken down. And I wear that as a badge of honor. Because if you're not getting taken off of Facebook, you're probably doing something wrong. Amen? And I'm glad. I'm glad. Hey, listen, that's not going to stop me from preaching. That's not going to stop me from telling the truth. Uh, if, you, if you came to this church five years ago and you thought I was going to change, I got news for you. If this book doesn't change, I'm not changing. And uh, praise the Lord. Amen? You agree with that? And uh, so we're going to talk about this morning, not the fall of mankind, but we, we talked about that last week and what it was that led up to the transgression in the Garden of Eden. We stated that the la at the last analysis, the temptation hinged on one matter, really, and one matter only. Would Adam and Eve believe God or would they believe Satan? 
And at the conclusion of the message, we determined that our last analysis rested entirely upon the same thing, belief. Will we believe the word of God or will we believe the doubt, denial, and delusion of the devil? Remember those points from last week. And so there's absolutely no book on this earth like the word of God. And my hope is that if you're not excited about it right now, that you'll be excited by the time that you leave. I really want to encourage you and get you uh, thinking and excited about the book that you have on your lap or you have on your app. i got to say that now because we've got people that use those electronic things. Anyway, uh, so there's, there's just no other book like it. Now, for me, I like the printed page. Again, it, uh, for some reason, the printed page gets deeper into my heart. I can't explain that. But this book is unique. It's powerful. It's trustworthy. It is God's complete revelation of himself to man. That's why I don't believe in when somebody says, I got a word from the Lord or something like that. I've got a knowledge from the Lord. Well, me too, but it comes from this book. you know. And there's no, no private interpretation, no private uh, conversations that, people, that God gives to people so they have something that goes beyond the scope of this book. Uh, this book is God's complete revelation of himself to man. There's no more. There is no more. And so uh, the, it's called the Bible. Now, we call, well, you ever wonder why we call it the Bible? Well, maybe you didn't. Maybe, maybe now you're wondering. Why do we call it the Bible? Well, that comes from the, a Greek word, uh, bibles. It's, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's uh, bibles, and it means a book. It means a book. I'm telling you, this, this, the Word of God is, is, is a book, <laughs> and it's like none other. It is, it is a God-breathed book, and we're going to see that in just a minute in our, in our text. There's absolutely no other book like it. I'd like you to note the word inspiration. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is only translated into English twice in our King James Bible. Only two times will you find the word, the English word inspiration twice in the Bible. Once is in the Old Testament and once is in the New Testament. We uh, find this, first of all, we'll look at the one in the Old Testament, Job chapter 32 and verse number 8. Job 32, verse number 8. Now, this is Job's friend, right? With friends like that, who needs enemies? Job's friend, Elihu, Elihu, however you want to pronounce it, albeit misguided, he stated a truth. Now, you know, he wasn't much of a comfort. God scolded all those men that came to try to comfort Job. They didn't comfort him. They, uh, they didn't help him much at all, that poor fella. He lost everything, and he had his friends accuse him. You must be in sin, Job. You must not be right with God, Job. And, but Elihu, Job 32 and verse number 8 is speaking here. Now, albeit misguided, he's still telling the truth when he says, but there is a spirit in man. That's the truth, isn't it? Man is a body, man is a soul, and man is a spirit. That's how God created him in the in the tri- it's a trichotomy, but he created him in the three-in-one image of God. God's a trinity. Man's a trichotomy. The thing that died when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not his body, it wasn't his soul, it was his spirit. The thing that allowed him to have a connection to God. And here we see that demonstrated, Job 32, verse number 8. But there's a spirit in man, and the here it is, inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. That's how God speaks to us in our heart through His Spirit. Now, if our spirit is dead in our trespasses and sins, God can't do that. 
We have to be quickened and made alive. That's, uh, that's part of being saved. We talked about the moment in a song, one of the songs we sang that in the moment that the sinner believes, the Spirit of God indwells them and quickens and brings that Spirit back to life because before that it was dead, had, had no life to it. And through that Spirit, the, the breath of God speaks to our hearts. You ever have the breath of God move in your heart? What? Can't explain it, can you? But you know when it happens. And by the way, it's, you know, we have to be careful about feelings and being moved by our feelings, and I don't want to allude too far over that way. We have to be careful with that. Some churches you go, and that's all they do. That's why they sing the 7-Eleven song. You know what a 7-Eleven song is, right? Same seven words, 11 verses. Over and over. That works up the emotion. That stirs the soul of people, their mind, their emotion, their will. That's not why we come to church. We don't come to church to have our soul moved. We come to church to have our spirit moved, the Spirit of God in us moved. That's why we sing the great hymns of the faith, because they move the Spirit of God in us. Amen? And so the Spirit of man uh, is mentioned there. There's a Spirit of man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. The Hebrew word for inspiration is the word, it sounds like this, nash-alma. Nash-alma. And I'm probably not doing that justice because I don't have a Hebrew tongue. You know, I, I, I know Greek and I know Hebrew, but I'm glad if I can get a good grasp on the English language. Amen? And I think there's a lot of preachers out there, they know a lot more about Greek and a lot more about Hebrew than I do and a lot more about Aramaic than I do, but they don't have a good grasp on the English language and it doesn't help them one bit. It doesn't help them one bit. You can't communicate to the people that you're talking to. You know, uh, what, what does it matter how many degrees you have behind your name? Now, the Hebrew word is nashalma, meaning the breath of El Shaddai. The breath, the inspiration, it says, of the Almighty, the Almighty God is El Shaddai. And so that's what the Hebrew meaning means, is the breath of Almighty God, the breath of El Shaddai. Now, that Hebrew word, this is interesting, that Hebrew word, nashalma, is found 24 times in the Word of God but is only translated into English, the English word inspiration one time. And so in other places, it's being used to speak of, of other things. But it's still the same idea. It's still the same word. But there in Job chapter 32, that is the only time that we see it translated into English. Now, over to the New Testament, back where we, were, back where we started in 2 Timothy, chapter 3 and verse number 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that's the only time that we see the Greek word for inspiration translated uh, into that English word uh, inspiration. Now, that Greek word's only found one time, and it's, the Greek word is actually a compound word, theonoustos. I pronounced that right, I know that. Theonoustos. Now, it literally means God breathed. Theo, God Neustos breathed. That's what it means. That's the Greek word found one time in the Bible, found one time translated into the word inspiration. Now, the Greek word neustos gave us the root for our English word pneumatic. Now, it went through the Latin first. It went from Greek to Latin to English, and it gives us the root for our English word pneumatic. I have with me this morning a pneumatic tool. So far as I know, it's not loaded. 
I checked it, but that's, I'm still not going to run it into my hand just in case there's a brad nail hung up in there somewhere. And wouldn't you know, that's what would happen if I demonstrated this in front of you today. I'd shoot a brad nail through my hand. This is a pneumatic tool. What this does is it takes a little tiny 18-gauge brad nail. I should have brought some to show you. It's just a little tiny thing. And it drives that brad nail through a piece of wood. It's got a little head on it. And it will hold up trim, trim to the wall. There's no trim up here for me to demonstrate that. But anyway, it puts up trim. This is a trim nailer, okay? And uh, there's one smaller than this that you'd use for upholstery. There's one, there's some bigger than this, uh, a, a framing nailer. I was afraid to bring that because if I shot that thing off, every one of you would hit the floor. I mean, it's loud. This one's not too bad. I, I will say it's going to make a noise. But you know what? It's not going to make a noise until something happens first. Now, see, this is a... A nail gun. Now, this is not how you use it. You don't take a nail and, okay, that would be the improper. Now, I have used it like that before, but it's not the proper use of this tool. This is a pneumatic tool. This is a neustos tool. It requires, what do you think? Air. You've got to have air plugged into it. This thing is absolutely positively useless well, not entirely, be a good paperweight, not quite heavy enough to be a boat anchor, but you could, you could probably get some kind of other use of it. But this, this thing is a useless for its intended purpose unless there's something plugged in right there. Now, behind me, I have the cheapest air compressor that Home Depot can sell. I buy them that way because, hey, I don't care if they break. They're easy to re replace that way. don't have to put it. It's uh, oilless. Don't have to worry about any maintenance. All I have to do is make sure that the air gets out of it when I'm done with, with using it. What happens is there's a, a generator, a motor that generates compressed, or in a, in a tank on the bottom, it generates compressed air and it puts air into that uh, tank and it compresses it and currently it's sitting at, oh, it looks like about 80 PSA. 80 pounds per square inch of air pressure is on the back side of this hose right now. Now, this thing is absolutely useless for its intended purpose. I'm pulling the trigger here. Nothing's happening. Nothing. It sounds, you know, that's how the roofers do it, right? And uh, no, it's doing absolutely nothing. It needs to have something plugged into it. It needs to have air plugged into it to make this pneumatic tool work. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to plug this in. Now, don't jump. It might hiss a little bit, but it doesn't bite. It's not a snake. Anything like that, just take that and jump. Oh, you see, it wasn't bad, was it? And there now, now this thing is, is alive. It is not useless any longer. As a matter of fact, when I plug that in, I, I start to pay a little bit closer attention to what I'm doing because I really don't want to run a break. I don't care if it's a small 18-gauge nail or not. I don't want to run it through my finger, right? Now this thing uh, is ready to go for its intended purpose. Oops, I broke it. There we go. See, it needs air. Now you take the air off. It's absolutely useless. Nothing. Dead. Absolutely useless. The word, the root word where we get our English word for pneumatic comes from the Greek, noustos. And it means breathe. Okay? Inspiration. 
the English word inspiration simply means that God breathes through a tool. God, God's breath came through a tool and accomplished its intended purpose, and the tool was the man that was used to write. Now, some people say the Bible is written by men. Well, that's true. It is written by men, but it's authored by God. Because without God, those men could not have accomplished the intended purpose. They were absolute, they were, there was nothing, there was nothing in them. They couldn't do it. They could have misused it. They could have abused it. But there's nothing they could do without the nustos of God, the air, the breath of God. It had to be plugged into them for them to be able to record the things that they recorded. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see. And I think I've mentioned, I've talked about pneumatic tools in the past. I thought, I'm going to bring it today and show people what I mean. Listen. All this air nailer is is an apostle Paul. It's a Peter. It's a James. It's a John. And with the right source, they were able to record the very words of God. That's what we have in our hands today. So therefore, because of that, the word of God is authoritative, it's inerrant, it's unchangeable, it's infallible, and it's effective. Now, this is Baptist History Month. And so I would like to just consider for a few moments the impact that the Bible has had on our nation. And I want to read you some quotes from some people that you might recognize. The first one is George Washington. I want to tell you what George Washington, one of the things that George Washington, let me get a drink. Thank you. George Washington said this about the Word of God. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without the Bible. That's what George Washington said. About Theodore Roosevelt. No educated man can afford to be ignorant of the Bible. How about Benjamin Franklin? Young man, my advice to you is that you cultivate an acquaintance with and a firm belief in the Holy Scriptures. Patrick Henry said, this is a book worth more than all others that were ever printed. John Quincy Adams said, it is an invaluable and inexhaustible mine of knowledge and virtue. Abraham Lincoln said, but for this book, we could not know right from wrong. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. John Jay, you know that name? He's the first uh, chief justice the Supreme Court of the United States, said the Bible is the best of all books for it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue therefore to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts. One last quote from General Douglas MacArthur. Believe me, sir, never a night goes by be I ever so tired but I read the word of God before I go to bed. Now you tell me that this book has not had an impact 
on our nation. Folks, lest the rewriters of history uh, fool us into believing it, this country was founded upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and upon the principles that we find in this book. Did you know that the Bible, whether they acknowledge it or not, but the Bible is the rule of law in every place in the world. The Bible is the rule of law. It's where law came from. It's where law came from. It came from God. I don't care what village in Africa. Uh, they may not have a copy of God's word in their own language, but I'm telling you, the rule of all law comes from God. And the rule of all the world is from the Bible. The U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights of the United States of America find their roots in the Word of God. The U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights are what they are because of the Bible. I like what Rob Chase said. Uh, he said, if I could sum up my campaign in one statement, it would be this. If we had just stuck to the Constitution, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. Now, I probably butchered that, Rob, but I pretty close, wasn't it? And he's right. You know why? Because it comes from this book. You can't go wrong when you follow the principles of this book. Our U.S. Constitution finds its roots in the very Word of God. Hey, let me tell you a fact. The charter of every one of our original 13 colonies includes biblical language. For example, listen to Rhode Island's, uh, Rhode Island's uh, um, charter for the state of Rhode Island. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The state charter for the state of Rhode Island, one of the original 13 colonies, says... We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. By the way, it's, pro it's uh, capital city, Providence, Rhode Island. It was named by a Baptist preacher. It was named Providence because of the church that was started there. Interesting history. Connecticut, state charter for Connecticut says, to preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in every one of the th original 13 colonies, in every one of their charters, there is biblical language. Those are probably two of the most, I don't know, poignant, pointed about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful history we have as Christians in America. Uh, the, the word of God is a foundation for all law in the whole world. It certainly has its roots in our Bill of Rights and Constitution and the charters of the colonies. Why is the Bible such an influential book? That's the question I want to answer today as we wrap this up. Number one, the Bible is an influential book because of the miracle of the Word of God. The miracle of the Word of God. Now, this is going to be full of facts and figures and things like that, and some of you like that. But here's, here's a miracle of the Word of God. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 old and in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And... Of those, in those 66 books of the Bible, there's 1,189 chapters. And in those 1,189 chapters, there's 31,102 verses. And in those uh, 31,102 verses, there are 783,137 
words. And every word is important. Even two weeks ago, we talked about the linking verb is. And so there's 183,137 words. And uh, that's, that's where it starts. Now, consider this, of those 66 books, and those, all those chapters, and all those verses, and all those words, there's one author, God, and there's 39 human writers. Now, these human writers spoke different languages. They had different educational backgrounds. They had different personalities, and thus they had different writing styles. They had 19 different occupations. They lived at various points in time. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. That's 15 centuries between the writing of Genesis to the writing of Revelation. 1,500 years, uh, 15 generations, I'm sorry, 15 centuries, 1,500 years between the writing of Genesis and the writing of Revelation. Now, there was 400 years between that, that elapsed between the writings of Malachi and Matthew. They call it the 400 years of silence, the 400 years of silence. And so the, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. You add that 400 years of silence and about 1,900 years, a period in history of 1,900 years. Now, what other book starts with one writer who dies after five chapters, and then over the next 1,000 years, 30 different writers add their contributions, and the 39th chapter after that is written, it stops, and nothing's written for 400 more years. And after that delay, eight new writers are used to add the final 27 chapters of this wonderful book, yet it has one common theme from beginning to end. Now, I'll give you a challenge. I'll offer anybody in this room $1,000. No, let's make it $10,000 to go pick out 66 books from the library written by 39 different authors. Uh, we can have any combination that you want. Over the period of almost 2,000 years, and I challenge you, I'd give you $10,000 if you could lace one, one thought in one book to the other thought in another book. This is a miraculous book. It's a miraculous thing. There's no other book like it. The Word of God has survived political discrimination. It's survived religious abuse. It has survived philosophical oppression. Yet it remains the most influential book in the world. It is the most translated book in the world. It is the most quoted book in the world. People quote the Bible. They don't, they don't even know they're quoting the Bible. It is the most quoted book in the world. It is the best-selling book in the world to date. It is the best-selling book in the whole world of all time, the Bible, the Word of God. And this is free. I'll just throw it in as a bonus. Of all the versions of God's Word that are printed, the King James translation is the number one best-selling Bible of all time in this world to this date. That's why by conviction, one of the reasons by conviction, we believe the King James translation is God's preserved Word for English-speaking people. We believe that God's able to preserve His Word and all God's people said, Amen. Psalm 12, 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried, and a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So first we consider the miracle of the Word of God. It's amazing, isn't it? When you, when you start to break that down, you say, wow. 
that many books, that many authors, that many differences in, in their personalities and their upbringings and backgrounds and, and that period of time, to almost 2,000 years, and there's one common theme that runs from beginning to end, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His imminent return, and He's coming again. Amen. He's coming again. So secondly, let's talk about the accuracy of God's Word. The accuracy of God's Word. There's archaeological accuracy. That's very important. Do you know that? Archaeology is in a, uh, just an amazingly important thing. As we uh, come up with discoveries and things like that, archaeology supports these things. And archaeology supports the Bible. Uh, I uh, gave a, a video to, uh, for Mark and Linda to borrow. It's a great, uh, it's, it's what's it called, something from Exodus, archaeology and Exodus and all the things that archaeology supports in the Word of God. Let me just give you a, f- a few. First of all, Unger's Bible Handbook lists 96 examples of archaeological evidence that provide uh, help for the Bible to show us that it's not just a story written by men. Um, it also, in Haley's Bible Handbook, if you have one of those, there's 112 archaeological examples. Uh, for example, things like uh, the Garden of Eden, archaeological proof for uh, for the Garden of Eden, the universal flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, the fall of Jericho. We could go through the whole Bible. And archaeological uh, dig after archaeological dig, more evidence becomes available as we, as we find more and more things. All this archaeological evidence uh, that support the accuracy of God's Word. Not only archaeological ac- accuracy, but scientific accuracy. I'm going to run into some things here I think would be a help to you because we, we talk to a lot of people who say, well, I believe in science. I'm going to help you with that right now, okay? Just a second. Because science is telling me I need a drink. All right, um, of water, all right? The fact that, I, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, the fact that the earth is spherical and spins on an axis, you know where that comes from? The Bible. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number two, uh, 22. Isaiah 40, 22, it's, uh, Isaiah speaking about God. It says, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, looking at that on its surface, you might say, well, how does that, how does that uh, prove uh, that the earth is spherical and spins on an axis? Well, the Hebrew word for, uh, that is translated into English, the English word circle carries with it the idea of a sphere that spins on an axis. You have to look at the Hebrew word and understand the meaning of it. And it re- references a sphere which spins on its axis. So here's the interesting thing. How many, how many of you know what year the book of Isaiah was written? Anybody? 740 B.C. 740 B.C., right? Well, here's the interesting thing. The earliest humanistic scientific concept of a spherical earth did not appear until 240 years after the book of Isaiah was written, and that claim was widely regarded as a speculation for another 200 years beyond that. So it was recorded in the Word of God before scientists ever discovered it. And that it was widely speculated for over 200 years. Here's another one. The earth is suspended in space. Job chapter 26, verse number 7. He stretches out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. The fact that the earth was, is suspended in space was not accepted by scientists until the writings of a fellow by the name of Sir Isaac Newton. In 1687. You see what I'm saying? There's scientific accuracy here. How about the balance of the earth as it orbits 
through space. Have you ever had a, a wheel out of balance on your car? We had a van in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. Like most people did, you know, it had carpet from wall to wall and on the ceiling, you know. We had a van, and it was the mystery mobile, you know. And, and uh, that van had a tire that was perpetually out of balance. My mother called it the woogity wheel. And you go a certain speed, and if you hit if you hit a bump just the right speed, that out of balance wheel would go woogity woogity woogity. That's why we called it the woogity wheel. And it would shake the van, and we'd have to almost come to a full stop before the van would stop shaking. And uh, my mother would, you know, get it to stop and then get back on the road. So anyway, uh, if you've ever had a wheel out of balance, you understand how important it is that that something that's spinning is balanced. You know how balances the earth so it doesn't <laughs> go woogity on us. God, and it's found in the Bible, Isaiah 40, verse number 12, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? That's how God does it. You know, he, he, has, to, he has to weigh it all out so the earth doesn't go woogity on us when it's spinning round and round and it hits a little bump. Isn't that wonderful? Science, scientific accuracy proves the accuracy of the Bible. How about the human bloodstream? The life of the flesh is where? In the blood. That's what the Bible says. The stars are innumerable. The host of heaven, Jeremiah said, cannot be numbered. Do you know scientists say that there are more than 3 billion stars in our galaxy alone? And if you were to ask them, well, how many galaxies are there? And the scientists would say, we don't know. You know why? Because only God knows. And so we see that scientific action. The stars are innumerable. So, just those things. I think that it's safe to say that if there's a conflict between science and the Bible, which one's wrong? Now let me say this. We do not believe that science and the Bible conflict. We don't believe that science and the Bible conflict. There's one set of evidence. Do you know that? And it's the same evidence that those who don't believe the Bible is the same evidence that, that we look at. There's one set of evidence. Those who do not use the Bible to interpret that evidence, evidence interpret, interpret the evidence wrongly. That's the problem. They're not using the Bible to interpret the evidence. We do. And so when they interpret the evidence, things like evolution start to take shape. And they're, they're just, they're not dummies. They're not stupid. They're just interpreting the evidence wrong because they're not interpreting it with the word of God. The Bible helps us to correctly interpret the evidence. Some would say that's impossible because science is based on evidence and observability. I've heard that so many times from people who, are, who believe in science. Well, let me, I, this is what I asked them too. I said, has science ever changed? If science is based solely on evidence and observability, has science ever changed? Well, no, science has never changed. Well, what about Galileo? He was put to death because he dared say uh, that the earth was round and not flat. Uh, 130 years ago, you might not know this, but do you know where the windshield came from? The windshield came from doctors that were concerned and worked with the automotive industries 
because cars were getting faster and faster. And 130 years ago, scientists and doctors thought that the human lung would collapse if it went faster than 25 miles per hour. And so the birth of the windshield. So people's lungs wouldn't collapse if they went faster than 25 miles per hour. It's just not true. It's bad science. And science has changed. It's, uh, it, some choose to place their faith in the science that changes, and this leads them to an incorrect interpretation of the evidence. Now, some choose to place their faith in the unchanging Word of God. Now, that does not conflict with science because faith in the Bible is based on evidence and observability. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 1. Go ahead and turn there if you'd like. Uh, I'm just going to go there quickly so we can come to the conclusion. But the Bible is based on evidence and observability. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse number 3 goes on to say, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Romans chapter 1 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and the Godhead. We can even understand a triune God by looking at the creation so that all the people who have ever populated the face of the earth, we're without excuse because the evidence is there. And if we interpret the evidence through this book, we're going to be fine. And so this book doesn't contradict with science because faith in this book is, is based on evidence and substance. Taste, touch, hearing, smelling, you know, seeing. Science has changed. It's ever-changing, but God's word has never changed. Forever, O Lord, the Bible says, thy word is settled, settled in heaven. So we've got archaeological accuracy. We've got scientific accuracy. We've even got prophetical accuracy accuracy of all the prophecies in the Bible, every one of them has been fulfilled up to the rapture of the church and the things that happen in the end times. All fulfilled prophecies in this book have been satisfied without error beyond the nth degree. You can take that to a Hebrew scholar and point out the prophecies concerning the Messiah and lay down the truth of Christ next to it and they cannot disagree. Well, yeah, he did fulfill that. He did fulfill that. He did fulfill that to the nth degree. Think about it. After all these things, and talked about about the Bible, the miracle of the Word of God, the accuracy of the Word of God. If the Bible was written by man, it wouldn't be the book that we have today. Matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say man would not write the Bible if he could. Even if God gave sinful man all of the necessary facts and abilities to write the Bible, why would he? Consider all the bad things written about mankind in the Bible. That is not the book that man would write. Man would say, talk about all the good things. There's basically good in everybody. And people, I don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, poo-poo all the good things that people do. I'm not trying to do that at all. But the fact is, man is not basically good. That's in contradiction to the Word of God. But if man wrote the Bible, that's how it would have, would have appeared. 
Consider all the doctrines which are offensive to the unnatural, sinful mindset of mankind. It goes contrary to our, our unnatural, sinful mindset. If man could write the Bible, he wouldn't. Even if God gave him the ability to do it in his own flesh, he wouldn't have written it like it's written. So, we've considered the miracle of the Word of God, the accuracy of the Word of God, and now to draw it to a conclusion. What is our responsibility to the Word of God? Number one, believe it. And number two, obey it. That's it. Believe it and obey it. Simple. That is our responsibility to the Word of God. So what I'm going to invite you to do this morning is ask yourself, do I believe that this is the Word of God? Do I believe it? Do I believe that this is the very Word of God? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is what God wants us to believe. What, what does God want us to believe? Well, God wants us to believe that this is His book. God wants us to believe that we're sinners by nature and by practice. God wants us to believe that there's a place called hell. And if we don't, if we don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're destined to spend eternity separated from Him, from His presence, in a place called hell. Very well could be that there's somebody here this morning that's blinded by the devil. and They can't see it. Oh, if you're a believer this morning, pray for them, will you? Pray that God would break through the blindness. Help them to see their need. Help them to see what God wants them to believe. Do I believe that this is the Word of God? And if I believe it, here's the second part the invitation. I invite you to obey it. Obey it. We ought to be as, as they were in the book of Nehemiah. After all those silent years, the Word of God never been, the Word of God never was spoken. They didn't know what it said. And, and as Ezra the priest stood up and opened the Word of God and began to preach it, and they gave the sense of it, the people, remember what happened? The people reflectively stood up in expectation. What's this going to say? What's God going to say? They believed it was the Word of God, but now they were in a position. They wanted to obey it. They wanted to do it God's way. Was that the position of our hearts this morning? I believe that's the Word of God. But has it made its way down into your heart? Are you ready to put action to it? Maybe you say, yeah, I believe it and I obey it. What I'm asking is if you obey it, are you in compliance with it? Are you in 100% compliance with God's Word? And it very well could be that you're here this morning, and as far as you know, you are in, you believe God's Word, and you're in 100% compliance with the Word of God. I think that's wonderful. But maybe you'd still take a step back and say, Father, is there anything? Is there any area of my life where I'm not compliant with your Word? Because, Father, if you'll show me, I'll make it right this morning. Maybe we would just make a commitment this morning to obeying the Word of God once and, once and again. I know we've done that before, but oh, what a precious thing to be able to take this time that God's, we've opened the Word of God and give God an opportunity to examine our hearts and to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to treat this book a little bit differently from this point forward. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a hymn of invitation, 175, Open My Eyes that I may see. And we're going to stand, we're going to sing that invitation. The invitation's been given.
the appeal has been made. The question I want you to ask yourself, do I believe and am I, am I in compliance? Those two questions, do I believe what God's word says? Do I believe what it says about the person of Christ, that he's God in the flesh? Do I believe uh, that he is uh, not only the person of Christ, but the passion of Christ, that his payment is enough for me to have a relationship with God? Do I believe and am, am I in compliance? Am I in compliance with God's word? Is there anything, Lord? Is there anything that I'm resisting you in? And if there is, I'll make it right today. I'll change it today, right this moment, as we sing on that first verse. 175, you come.